Hello, this is Out to Lunch, my greedy podcast series that's all about using a meal in a restaurant to tease out the best interviews. I invite along someone I think you'll find interesting, choose a restaurant they'll like, and order heaps of great food. Today, I'm dining with the ultimate Whovian, the co-creator of the BBC Sherlock and one quarter of the League of Gentlemen. It's Mark Gatiss. I remember the first press conference of Doctor Who, someone from the star or something made some sort of sly, nasty reference to Doctor Who going gay, and he said, I think you're a very rude man, fuck off. <laughs> and it was, it was amazing. So when we're setting up these episodes of Out to Lunch, we send out messages to our guests or their agents saying, do they like this food or that food? With Mark Gatiss, we said, does he like Indian food? And the answer came back, yes, Mark loves Indian food. So I brought him to Brigadier's, which is a new restaurant in the City of London from the same team who brought us Hoppers, the Sri Lankan place, and Jim Karner, high-end Indian. This one is more relaxed. It's done in a sort of polo club sort of way, a bit colonial. There's a pool table, there's draft cocktails, there's serious lamb chops action there's a load of kebabs and when i reviewed it i loved it i hope mark's gonna love it too let's get inside hi mark hello hello pleasure how are you very well thank you for coming pleasure come and sit down we're already rolling in that very (laughs) that way in that way yes this is like a private meeting at the lavender hill (laughs) The Lavender Hill Mall or something. Oh, right, in, a, in a back room. One of those private rooms you read about. Well, the funny thing is, you know, if you read obsessively cuttings about you, which it won't be a surprise to know I have done. <laughs> Recently. You know, the, the reference to the olden times yeah. is big. Victoriana has suggested a building of a Victorian lab in your own house. Yes. So we thought this space... With its references to Victoria, there are some stovepipes up on the back. Very good. Yes. The Brigadiers. It has. Little reference to Doctor Who. Nicholas Courtney, the shade <laughs> of Nicholas Courtney is with us today. He is. Uh, all the Doctor Who connections. Um, <laughs> so we, we always say, you know, dietary requirements, and we sent a specific note saying, does Mark like Indian food? And you came back saying, yes, very much. I do love All it. right, well, good. So I was thinking we could order in classic style down the middle of the table and... Weighed in. Yes. Well, I, I, will, I want you to help me out here, Jane, because I'm, I'm not a foodie. I like food. I but don't I know what that word it. means, is the funny thing. I don't know whether it, what it refers to. I anymore. would say you have considerably more expertise than I do. <laughs> expertise or just sheer greed and experience? <laughs> expertise is just the accretion of doing things repeatedly, isn't it? Well, that's good. Wildian. <laughs> I've been doing them repeatedly. Chili pork scratchings with Codsrow as a kind of snack. That's interesting. The other thing I noticed was the uh, goat belly vindaloo samosas. That sounds amazing. Goat belly. It's just those words, isn't yes, it? Yes, yes. There's no food, it's just words. Yeah. It's one of those interesting things. Certain animals have bellies. Pigs have bellies. Yeah. Lambs have breasts. You ever seen? I mean, they start occasionally. Pig breast. You never hear of pig breast. You never hear of pig breast, do you? You do hear of pork belly. Is there pig milk? Uh, Pig cheese? No. Why not? I have no idea. The idea of milking a pig. What was her name? Um, Sorry, I'm referring back to celebrity. What was it? It was a. Oh yes. Do you remember that? (laughs) Rebecca Luce. Rebecca Luce, who tossed off a pig for reality television. Yes. Yes. We live in the golden age. <laughs> that was a special thing. Um, you do wonder, you know, sheep get milked, yes. uh, goats get milked. There's sheep cheese, isn't there? There's sheep cheese. 
Why have I never seen pig's cheese? I'm going to throw something into this now. Go on. Has anyone ever made human cheese? Yes, yes, that has been done. What's it like? Um, I've not tried it. But, I mean, but, but it's, it's sort of... There is a taboo around breast milk. Someone yeah. is making breast milk ice cream. Um, but, you know, getting hold of it is, is a bit of an issue. <laughs> Somebody else, uh, a really interesting experiment, was obviously you need a bacillus to culture your cheese. And somebody made a whole bunch of cheeses by culturing various of their own skin bacillus, what they found in their navel, in between their toes. Wow. It was an art experiment rather than anything else. I feel somehow it will lead to the end of the world. Do you think? Yes. Because that, then those, Vi- that bacillus will take over <laughs> and they'll become the thing. Yes, um, Do you like grills? Yes. See, I've got this idea that we could then go onto a mixed grill sizzler, which is a, an enormous load of stuff. Will yeah, that make my eyes water? No, I don't think so. Because don't sizzlers do that? They bring them in and they're... F- uh, this is Claudio, who will be serving us today. Hello. It's a pleasure to have you here. Is it very smoky? We have... Uh... It is a little bit smoky, yes. Is it? So I know a little about it. It's still sizzling when it reaches your table. Should we do that? Yeah. And then uh, I'm looking for dowels and things like that. A black lentil. Black lentil. Like my soul. And... Shall I bring some bread basket for your table? Yes, please. Yes, please. But I mustn't fill up on bread. No, don't do I that. That would be a terrible thing. I always do. And a cucumber salad? Yes. As a kind of light thing? Just like some chutney. Uh, oh, yeah. I love chutney. And chutney. Chutney and poppadums. That'd be great. Yeah. <laughs> So I was thinking, I, I think I owe you an apology. Oh, no. Slightly. So we are contemporaries almost of an institution. Europe Bedlam. Bre- <laughs> yeah, Bedlam. <laughs> Europe Bretton Hall. Yes. 86 to 89. Yeah. Now, Bretton Hall was, I think it was accredited by Leeds University. And I was the editor of Leeds Student, the student paper that covered not just Leeds University, but the poly and all the colleges... And I did an appalling job of covering those other colleges. And if I had, I might well have been the person to discover the League of Gentlemen. Wow. No apology necessary. It was a disappointing course. Oh, was it? Yeah. We bonded in adversity. We ended up doing our own stuff because we, we were a bit frustrated by the, by the course itself. And, and it was incredibly fruitful. So... Uh, Steve and I and a few friends devised a show called Damage Your Children, which we took to the National Student Drama Festival in, in 88. And then the year after, we did another play called Death Warmed Up, which we took to the NSDF again. So that both years in Cambridge, the closest I got to a Cambridge education was, was a fortnight. And a fortnight <laughs> in Cambridge. In Cambridge. I felt I'd done it. Where hey. was Bretton Hall? I mean, that's the terrible thing. I don't even know where Bretton Hall oh, you was. you can't find it. It's on no map. Is it on uh, the, it's, uh, <laughs> is it on the map? Here it's outside Wakefield. It's it's a place, uh, oddly enough, just been back. Uh, it's where the Yorkshire Sculpture Park is. Oh, right, OK. And when it closed, it became a police college, and it's now going to become a hotel. But it's now, at the moment, just covered in, in fencing. It's quite melancholy to go and look back and see it all overgrown, looking like uh, Chernobyl. We make great hay out of the fact that the college scarf was the same one they used in the prisoner it's the same colors and the same and uh, it was not it was an irony not lost on us because it was an incredibly isolated place and west breton which is the tiny village it's part of is amazingly uh, to this day a dry village 
well, there are no pubs at no. all. And it's a, it's a thing. It's not just there aren't any pubs. It's, it's a thing. It's dry. It's, uh, it, it's by <laughs> some sort of ancient temperance. Right, so the temperance movement, which was very big yeah. in that bit of the north. Yeah. Now, so um, the uh, college bar was the only place you could get a drink for miles around. Um, one of the things you have said is that you bonded with Steve Pemberton and Jeremy and Reese as four northern lads mm. who had that similar background. Was that definitely the case? Were you, did you all have the same reference points? Completely. I mean, we, you know, we've, we all have a memory of watching Carry On Screaming on Bonfire Night on the same, night, same year. And, and Literally. It, yes. We, and we, all, we all ducked out of going to bonfire celebrations to watch Carry On Screaming. And I can now visualise the four of us in different parts of the North glued to the telly but we did you know, in that way you know you, you, when you meet someone you, you have a, you're immediately sort of simpatico with it's a it's a big thing but also it was a very shared northern thing we were all from work you know working class northern backgrounds and we had an amazing amount in common it was you know, we, we i remember very early on we did when we were sort of planning the league we did this um sort of big improvised thing just for fun like just 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 at home uh, about what it felt like when you were waiting for your dad to come home <laughs> and that sound of the sort of the, the car on the gravel and the vague sense of dread <laughs> at, at you know at dad coming and it was amazing how how similar that was for all of us and, and you know sort of eccentric uncles and things like that it was all very much of a piece it gave us a sort of very authentic northern voice and again i've thought about that a lot recently recent years but i used to i used to get very cross about the fact that people would make a big thing of us being northern you know i remember the uh we went to a launch for the first series of the league and our absolute first principal proviso was that there would be no brass band music anywhere <laughs> in the show and there wasn't. And then the trailer was made for this and they launch. Put, they put and they put brass They put the Brighouse and Rastring, but it was like, Jesus Christ. Oh, look, Papadonis have arrived. Thank you. So it, tell us what the chutneys so are. You have a smoked aubergine raita, a green chilli chutney, and our house tomato chutney. Oh, thank, thank you, you very much. Um, the, there are various things, as you know, that pop up in every kind of profile and whatever. Um, and the building across the road is the key one. Mm. And what I can't work out is whether you do actually think it was relevant or just think it's an interesting bit of biog and that's... So describe what the building across the road was to those who... Uh, it was a mental hospital where my dad worked. He was chief engineer there. Again, I used to sort of slightly push against this in interviews because in Wikipedia and, and certainly elsewhere it is assumed the proportions of Arkham Asylum it's like this vast yeah, it, 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 there's always lightning going yeah. off over the top <laughs> and the winds blow so that's not true it was built in the 30s um, but it was a huge part of our lives our house was owned by the hospital everybody else in our street worked there we used to get our hair cut there we used to go swimming there we used to go to the pictures there it was a big part of our lives it was a summer fate I remember every year the, the hospital fate saw the glitter band and sweet play there do you believe the glitter band with no no but sweet <laughs> the sweet we saw the sweet by the way I have to say sounds off that yeah. is a poppadon cracking yeah. on microphone which is a not my bones so, so what um, Gary was not part of the he band not no no I was spared that um but um, 
So did, did he's not welcome to visit at some point. No, <laughs> not. I tell you who did though, Rolf Harris. Oh. I've got a picture of me and Rolf when I was four, four or five years old. He used to be my prized possession. Not anymore, listeners. When did you decide to get rid of that one? I've still got it. It's just, <laughs> really? I used to show it around a bit more, you know. Um, it was just part of our lives, and I only really realised how odd how odd it felt to other people when at school that yeah. people were kind of, you know, they wouldn't they they come to my house, but they didn't want to cycle past the hospital because they were scared, and so, which I never was, and. Were the people who were being treated there? I mean, were they being treated there, or were they being housed there? Housed. Really. Oh, really? I mean, so there was, long term. There was a secure ward, which I was frightened of, but mostly it was people with long term uh, psychiatric conditions, disability, and and my. But my dad does remember when he first started working there in 1969. Um, there were old ladies there who were only in because they they'd had uh, illegitimate children. It's funny what defines horror, isn't it? Because to me, that is the <laughs> well, definition yes. of horror. Oh, of a God, kind of horror. incredible. So <laughs> I, I, I resisted this thing and that, that it had a huge impact on me, but I think it obviously must have done. And I remember distinctly, um, there, was a, there was a lovely patient called Peter who used to walk, he just used to walk everywhere. That's what he, used to, he used to get up and walk for miles and miles and you'd just always see him, always wave to him and he'd say, hello. And he just looked like, you know, perfectly at peace with the world in his in his tiny sort of circumference of things, and he just looked happy. And I briefly worked at the hospital as a gardener when I was a student, and got caught in a thunderstorm. And I was sat there under an awning, and Peter came and sat next to me. I never spoke to him apart from hello. He suddenly just unburdened himself. How old were you? I was uh, I was twenty. One, twenty-two, and he, he told me about the fact that he and two of his sisters had been put into institutions, and he hadn't seen either of them since the day they they, they went in. And he just it was and I was so I was very upset by it because I, I he just I just imagined his, he was just happy, and he was really he was oh, very, very unhappy, very very unhappy the whole time. Thank you. So what have we got here? This is our pork scratches with a quarter of raider. And you have the goat belly, binderusa, sauce with a tomato okay. and onion jelly. Don't forget that. <laughs> oh, we're on the uh, goat, goat belly. Goat belly, mm. not breast. Mm. Samosas, and those are very good. Obviously, everything that's happened to you—it's been a—it's a successful career. It's all going great. You live in North London. You are part of the London metropolitan whatevers. Do you cling fondly to the memories of your childhood? Do you look at it as source material? Um, how does it sit with you, I'm, given just how distinct it is from where we are now? I'm very fond of it. I'm very grateful to my family for a really very normal and happy upbringing. I remember not long before my mum died, she we were going for a walk and she we were just sort of waxing nostalgic and we got to talking about Christmas presents and stuff like that. And we'd never talked about this. I'd never, I'd never complained, but I was always aware that when we were children, we didn't... You know, I got my brother's bike, and I was always slightly embarrassed at school by not having certain new things. And and she said, I know, I think we were a bit too careful, but we were just so scared of getting into debt. And I said, well, I'm so, I'm so grateful you did that rather than yeah. the alternative, you know. I was a death-obsessed child. 
Genuinely? Oh, yeah. In what, way, what form would that death uh, obsession take? Morbid, as my mum used to say. I, I'm obviously obsessed with horror films and vampires and graveyards, all those things. Less so now, <laughs> the closer I come to them. <laughs> but As I, you move up in the way you Yes. <laughs> but, um, but, but in a way, I'm not making excuses for myself, but in a way that sort of Victorian obsession with it was much healthier because they lived with it much more. We've become so detached from it. I think that that is genuinely dangerous. People become anaesthetised to, to death to the extent where they, de- they don't even think about it at all. And if you've seen it, then... You, it does change your. It changes your. You were with your mother when she died. Yes, I was, and uh, that was it. It was an. To use an old expression, it was, it was awful. <laughs> it was immense. It was an immense moment. I remember the feeling of this is doesn't get much bigger than this, does it? To actually see someone, to see the light go from someone's eyes, and you and you, you, know? you were aware of that happening. Yes, and I remembered. You know, and then there's a sort of extraordinary pause and then I just remember sitting on the doorstep and just going wow wow that's just extraordinary so what was your first my first team job was a a show called Harry with Michael Elphick sort of uh, was that a Yorkshire TV production it was was shot in Darlington which is virtually where I'm from so that's how I got in the door and then the casting director Susie Brufflin also did Catherine Cookson and I auditioned for that and got it, and I thought, here we go. And then I didn't work for two years. <laughs> I was on the dole. I would sign off the dole to write things, uh, sign back on the dole, uh, tiny bits of acting, and, and that's what kind of kept me going. I moved to London. What made you move to London? Because it's what you do. <laughs> and because I'd always, I always wanted to, and, and I always thought, this is where I'm going to have to do it. So I... I, I came via I lived in Bristol for a while but I was always here I was always coming to London I thought this is silly now I'm gonna have to take the plunge I got a tiny room in Muswell Hill and I scraped a living and a friend of ours from Breton who let he left Breton it's called Gordon Scott now Gordon Anderson Gordon had five nights to put the traitor back on but he couldn't get the cast back together and so he basically had five nights and he said to me and Steve and Reese and Jeremy, why don't you do a comedy show? And that's how it began. The mood of League of Gentlemen, Royston Basie and all of that, that still refers back to everything you were at Bretton Hall, doesn't oh, it? Oh, yes. Um, what we didn't realise was the extent to which it was a prediction as opposed to a reflection, is it? You know, it's a prediction of where we've been. Do you think now? Do you think yes. Royston Basie is basically... Would uh, Royston Basie have voted leave or remain? Mark? Well, we... We did three new episodes two years ago. God, already. Uh, the Christmas ones. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, as a, an anniversary thing. And we, you know, we couldn't avoid... We, we didn't want it to make it a, a completely on-the-nose satire. Uh, cause, but everything we seemed to talk about seemed to reflect it. But we did have Edward and Tubbs say at one point, it's time to take back control. <laughs> Mostly because Edward looks like Michael Gove. But because they are... That is what they... Their, their mantra, you know... There's nothing for you here. This yeah. is a local shop for local people. It's become Britain. I think it has. We we thought we were satirising a sort of... Thing in the past, closed, inbred. Yes. Uh, it, Not realising it was going to become our... It was a documentary. Yes, it's a, it's a docudrama. <laughs> you made a, a docudrama. A docudrama. Yes. That's the bit we never t- told anyone. It was actually just shot live. <laughs> <laughs> 
But I still, you know, what I love about people's response to it still is is this, the embracing and celebration of these sort of freakish people, really. And people like Paulie, you know, they're monsters. They're absolute monsters. Uh, but but people feel very warmly towards them. But know? isn't that because you did? Oh, yes. I think so, yes, because it's not a hatchet job. We used to... You know, a lot of them are based on real people or elements of real people, but and they were, but there's still something you want to find human and lovable about them. At this point, you can be forgiven for looking back and thinking and viewing that work and saying that's the work of a, of a person when young. But are you, you're, you you look at it and you you're still very comfortable with it. Yes, I mean, I don't. I I, I know this always sounds disingenuous, but I've rarely have ever watched things that I did done before because I, I, I just you just move on you move on and uh, I mean it's not a if, if something's on I wouldn't be averse to but I, I rarely seek things out because you want to carry on I suppose but but I did deliberately watch the league to try and remember how to do the voices yeah, right, okay. <laughs> but also I just I thought now's the time and I was very impressed with it I mean there were certain things as ever you think oh, you do slightly differently but but mostly I thought it was it really stood up and I mean, again I used to, we used to always get slightly cross people saying oh I can't watch it it's too dark and I think what's the matter with you and then I, wa- I watched a bit and go uh huh <laughs> <laughs> yeah yes, quite dark yeah <laughs> did you even look at yourself and think god what, are, what is going on in the mind of those people well, those... but I always think that <laughs> do you? ever been in therapy yes did you enjoy it yes I did <laughs> I have to say, one of the we had conversations before starting to interview people, and I did express the opinion that you would not be a problem to interview because you embrace the process. Oh yeah, I, I, I've, I've got um, sort of emotional incontinence. I'll just tell everyone, <laughs> as you may have noticed. Um, I yes, I did. I haven't done it much. I did it after my mother died uh, and my sister, and I go back for kind of top ups. I find it useful just to talk, really. Just to talk? Yeah, and not to get any sort of specific list of solutions. It doesn't work like that. I think it's just sometimes you get a bit of a log jam of stuff you want to get off your chest. I've only done it once for one hour um, about a specific issue I had, which was how actually to deal with online abuse. Oh, really? But I'd actually worked it out by the end. But I enjoyed very much an hour sitting in Susie Orbach's room. Do you not find... I found, though, as well, though, it's a bit... This is a this is like collaborating, writing. Uh, often, when you're stuck on something, the very fact of meeting up to talk about it loosens something up. So when I'm writing with Steve Moffat, and, I, and it's like, shall we? So let's get on the phone about this, or let's meet up because I can't wait. So Steve Moffat, who was the showrunner of, of Doctor Who yes. when you joined. And you're now doing Dracula with Yes, and we, did, we created Sherlock together. Yeah. And, and, and often, um, you know, it's like, oh, I can't, I can't this is in, absolutely intransigent, I can't find a way through. And then you go into a room and go, so, oh! <laughs> <laughs> well, the moment you see him, well, you see it, like, and you start yeah. thinking how he'd think and think. Or, or whatever, it's just somehow, it's weird. And I think I've found that a bit with therapy, where you, as you say, you do sort of talk... As you're talking... It all becomes ex- clear. Expecting some brilliant solution, you realise as you're saying it, actually, I know what it is, really. I think I just needed to say it out loud. Stuff like that. Oh, Sizzlers! Sorry, yes. I told you. Gas mask. <laughs> ah, you're just fantasising. It's a light lunch. Yeah. This is the mixture of Sizzler. 
So you have guinea fowl reshmi kebabs, you have a tandoori masala jinga, which are tiger prawns, you have our spiced lamb chops, and you have the avdi chicken chops. Basically, a chicken chop is a chicken thigh. We're delighted to know that chickens don't have chops, <laughs> but they well, do have thighs. They do have thighs cut up, especially to look like chops. The things they can do these days. I think uh, I, I feel like we're both here, just letting the uh, folio sound effects go. This is good. <laughs> so this is served with a green chili chutney and a paprika chutney. Thank you. Thank you very much. Something very reassuring about the word chops. Uh, a chop, yeah. I've chop house. What's with tea? I've got some chops. Your yes. Thank you. Um, so, Doctor Who. Mm. You you were obsessed with it as a kid. Mm-hmm. Totally. And then came off the air in '89. I never read. And then I wrote a couple of books, spin-off books. The license, Virgin Books, got the license to carry on. But how did that happen? Did someone just approach you? And... No, there was a they ad, they advertised. Oh, really? Writers, yeah. So I just reached. I literally just left college. It was like. That's what that's what I'd rather do more than anything else in the world is write Doctor Who. So did you have to write an outline and a yeah yeah for Doctor Who? So story? I did this uh, one. Oh, it's about nostalgia. It's about a creature that essentially feel, feeds off people's memories. Oddly enough, and it's set in Yorkshire in 1968, and it's called Nightshade. And it's a, and the, the central character is this actor who who's been in a sort of Quatermass-like series. And he's living in a retirement home in Yorkshire. And he starts seeing the monsters from his series in real life. And, and he realises eventually that something is feeding off people's memories. Um, anyway, it did very well. But um, in 2003, I was in bed and the phone rang. And my friend rang me up and he said, are you sitting down? I said, no, I'm, I'm in bed. <laughs> it's midnight. He said, Doctor Who's coming back. And I said, What? He said, it's coming back. They, they, they're just going to do it again. And it, I never really thought it would happen. And suddenly it did. And I knew Russell a little. Uh, and Russell T. Davis, who was the first showrunner. Yeah. And it's frightening how quickly these things blur. I'd have to actually go and look it up. But I do, somehow or other, I was sent the breakdown of potential stories. And episode three was called The Name is Dickens, Charles Dickens. And I thought, oh, I hope they're... I hope they asked me to write that one. And then Russell rang me up Christmas of 2003, best things ever happened to me, and said, probably said, are you sitting down, I imagine. Um, I said, no, I'm lying down. I'm in bed again. Uh, and, and asked me to write that. Uh, and so it was amazing. And I wrote for the show uh, for the next t- 12 years, uh, 10 stories in total, including the, and the, the story of... Of how it began, the William Hartnell biopic, as it were. Yeah, a, a story, an event in time and space. This is the kid from Durham in the shadow of the um, lightning bursting out of the sky. <laughs> you see, you're doing it now. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> uh, I think we can all do it. Uh, gets to write for the series that was one of the key parts of his life. Yes. I'm not sure you'd put it in a plot, would you? <laughs> but it... It has to happen to someone. Yeah, no, this is true. <laughs> it also happened to an awful lot of other people who were pinching themselves black and blue. Because, you know, I think I think the difference, I've always said, really, is that with something like that, I think if, if you spend your entire life writing Doctor Who stories in your bedroom and then you, you, you don't make any progress towards writing for television, yeah. it's not going to happen. 
you're going to write those stories for the rest of your life. That's fine, but and that's not to say you could you couldn't hold down a job as a quantity surveyor and also become a TV screenwriter. Yeah. But mostly people do it, and you need to write about other things more than just the one thing you always wanted to write about. And I think that's the key difference. You know? Did any of the ideas, plot lines that you did write in your bedroom as a kid? influence any of the stories that you eventually wrote no although Russell and Stephen Moffat both told me that they, they came a point where they sort of ransacked their memory thinking what was that brilliant idea I had when I was eight <laughs> I think we should do that now <laughs> I don't think I ever did no. and when I was when I was in Doctor Who which again was unbelievable uh, I remember thinking somehow or other in my head I was going to be in the Curse of Peladon I was going to be in the show <laughs> It was quite odd to be in the modern show because in every other respect it was like being in any other show. I knew most of the people involved. I knew where it was going to be shot, sitting in a in a trailer. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the process was identical and yet somehow in my head I thought when it finally happens, it's a bit like having sex. You think the moment afterwards everything will change. Nothing does. <laughs> You're still you. <laughs> yes. So... I remember that feeling of somehow or other a sort of weird disconnection between the thrill of being in the new show and being in the show at all, but also thinking somehow or other I thought I thought I'd be next to an ice warrior and John Pert was mm-hmm. I was in a story with David Tennant called The Lazarus Experiment, playing a, a scientist who starts up this is one of my fondest memories of the show. It I was sent the first draft of the script. Professor Lazarus is a 76-year-old man who invents a machine which makes him young again. And in the script it said, he steps from the machine, a blonde Adonis, right? I, I accepted the role and then was sent draft two. Right. And it said, he steps from the machine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you very much. We were filming in the Welsh Senate. To this day, a building which is mysteriously available for filming because <laughs> nothing ever happens there. And... Um, I had to sit in in my dinner jacket and they'd fill it, they filled it up with dry ice like Martin Sheen in Apocalypse Now and the, the first assistant said I'm gonna have to, we're going to have to shut the door properly Mark, so it can fill up so the place was chaotic as usual lots of crew all these extras Thelma Barlow guest star and, and they shut the door on me and suddenly it was silent and I'm sitting there in my dinner jacket and my blonde wig and whilst the dry ice fills up do you get claustrophobic? No, but what I did get brilliantly, just as it sort of touched my nose, was I thought, "Fucking hell, I'm in Doctor." <laughs> it was it was a it was what I got is a, a jab in the neck of pure Saturday nightness. I just felt it, oh, like re- the real thing, and and when and it's it's basically the take they use when I burst out and say, "I am Richard Lazarus. I am 76 years old and I am reborn." That's really just me going, "I'm in Doctor." <laughs> Hi there, I'm Ollie. I'm the executive producer on Out to Lunch. And this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Imagine you had the time it takes to have lunch. Gifted to you each day, an extra hour. What would you do with that time? For me personally, after listening to Out to Lunch in a swanky new restaurant, I'd love to spend more time actually sampling the food there myself. Now, a lot of us wish we had more time. But in reality, if something is really important, then we make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. It can help you clear your head and take control of your life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist 
and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Plus, it's entirely online to save those precious minutes. With over a 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash out to lunch. That's betterhelp.com slash out to lunch. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. I hope that despite being nostalgia-inflected all my life, what I was, what we were all trying to do is take the show forward so that you know, future generations look back and say, oh, yes, but but um, Jodie Whittaker was, was the doctor, wasn't she? In that way that we do, we, everyone has their doctor. And it's, I, I love that about the show. I love the fact that it's, you can see the same things happening to different audiences, and, and, but they're not, they're not aware that they're actually repeating themselves, you know. I've got a letter at home which says, Doctor Who is no longer for children. The stories are far too complicated. Uh, I'd hesitate to show my child now. They'd be terrified and, and disturbed. And, and uh, where's the show that I grew up with? Uh, September 1976, it says. Was it useful that it was Russell T. Davis, who was showrunning at that point, who, dare I say, appeared to have a massive appetite for being in your face? Yes. Queer as folk had, had his... his Brilliant series. You see, Russell has what, what he has is this extraordinary gift. He, he, he's, he's he's larger than life in every way. He's a very tall man, amazingly Welsh and boomy, and he has this appetite for an enthusiasm for life and for drama and for telly, and it's incredibly infectious. But also, he's very straight about it. You know, I remember the first press conference for Doctor Who. Someone, someone. It seems like a vanished age now because I don't know if they dare to say it now, but someone made some sort of sly, nasty reference to Doctor Who going gay, and he said, "I think you're a very rude man. Fuck off." <laughs> and it was, it was amazing. And it was a full press conference. Like BBC just, press office just said it. Did the did BBC press conference did did press officers? Um, I, I, I think there was. I remember some at the corner of my eye, but it was really exciting. That's you know, brilliant. it was like that's the way to do it. And and what Russell did, he was in amazingly bold with it you know he said right all the time lords are dead the doctor's the last one there's been a time war we don't know what's happened and you know a lot of the fans are going you can't you can't do that and you're going but that's the point you can do it and and it's in fact it it gives the thing room to breathe it makes you go all this continuity of the last 50 years you can just ignore it you want you know and and if you're trying to get a new audience who don't even know the show ever existed you cannot talk to them about something that was on 50 years ago you can you can bring in little nods for people who are old as old as we are but you mustn't make it the central force of it otherwise you're make you're you're basically pastiching it. you moved on or at the same time uh with Stephen Moffat to do Sherlock yes in a slightly parallel world we would still be trying to make the film of the first episode of Sherlock it's a film-length script by Steve scan uh, a study in pink and there is a, a world in which that's the script we tried to make as our Sherlock Holmes movie, and t- 
10 years later, it still hasn't been made. The idea of that fills me with such horror. That's true horror. <laughs> because think, whatever you loved about that would now have been pummeled out of you. It was the easiest commission there'll ever be. Uh, Julie Gardner, who used to be the co-exec on Doctor Who, was head of Wales, and we we had to make it in Wales. That was part one of the provisos. We had a very basic phone conversation about it but Steve and I went and see her at TV Centre we sat down and she said so modern Sherlock Holmes yes that was it it. yeah but that's almost old school BBC yes but the thing is if you you pick it apart slightly it's Sherlock Holmes is the most photographed character in all fiction and it's not period that's immediately two enormous ticks you know did you have Benedict Cumberbatch at that point Uh, nobody was our only choice it, I mean, and then and then we had to go through various. You know, we made a pilot and we went through various hurdles, but the, the, the beginning of it was unbelievably straight, absolutely unbelievably straightforward. My favourite all-time commissioning story is the the Python one. They went to see Barry Took, I think, actually put them together. They'd all worked on various things, yeah. um, and they went to see James Gilbert, who was head of comedy, and it, the meeting went very badly. Uh, he said, what is it? Is it like a, an Oxbridge review? And then they just went, don't know. Um, are there songs? Don't know. Are there any girls? Don't know. How long are the sketches? I haven't thought about it, really. Not not very good. He went, all right, but you could only have 13. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. So it was, a very, it was an old-fashioned meeting, uh, and it, it came out of this conversation on the train to, to Cardiff to do Doctor Who that... Um, there was this odd coincidence that we were in the middle of another Afghan war and that's how Dr. Watson starts the first story and it just kind of pinged like a light bulb. It's like, we could do that again. Rathbone and Bruce did it. Why don't we do it? Let's bring it up to date. And so then we had this a lot of fun thinking about how to make equivalences, you know. He wouldn't smoke a pipe. What, what is he? Oh, maybe he has nicotine patches. That's quite funny. And he wouldn't wear a deer stalker, but he'd probably still be quite a man who has a quiet primness of dress as Doyle says so he should be quite monochrome and all these things maybe they live above a, an Indian restaurant in Baker Street all these things it's a flat share some of them just kind of clicked into place you know but what we what we weren't prepared for at all is for it to become a phenomenon and we were very proud of it but we literally watched Benedict become a, an overnight star that night we watched that. It was a successful job in character actor before. Yeah, and, and a very well respected theatre name, but it's, he was on the brink of something and it just happened. And it was, it was an amazing feeling. Have you had enough? I have, oh, thank you. A dessert menu. Do you do dessert? Yes. Good. So they're basically soft serves, so they're all ice creams. They're our own take on cool feeds. Mmm. Brilliant. I'd like the coconut and winter fruit faluda, please. And I'll have the chocolate, salted peanut, and gur. It's a lot of Doctor Who planets on this menu. <laughs> and, and, and it's all been planned. <laughs> all been planned. We looked at every For detail. <laughs> One of the things I've always loved about your work, you believe in story. Um, there's a thing in the British publishing industry where they, they, they talk about plot as MacGuffin. Mm. Oh, it's just the stuff that happens, but tell us what it's about. But you seem to believe very, very strongly in the stuff that happens. That, I think that attitude is despicable. That, Good. That, that, that's what's led to, I would say... 30, Turgid novels. 30 years of unreadable novels. I, I mean, something happened, didn't there? Someone wrote about this, I forgot who it was. There's a little schism where 
when when books became a lot more available and literacy went up, a lot of books which had become classics became children's stories, and in fact, somehow looked down upon, especially the primacy of of a good yarn of a good story. It's like it's extraordinarily strong and powerful, and and uh, and that's what people completely respond to. They they don't respond to arid novels. Is that the appeal of the older source material that you go back to? Um, so I'm talking about Sherlock and even Doctor Who in itself and, and the Gothic. To make good Gothic fiction, to make good horror, something has to happen. Mm. Stuff has to keep happening. Yes, uh, inc- incident is very underrated in it? drama. I think uh, I've read over the years so many books that have been recommended, sort of Booker Prize winners, and just. I just hurl them across the room. Not all of them, but you know, you just think, oh, for God's sake, when's something going to happen? Those sort of, I really, I really love naturalism, and I love, I love, I also, I love films where nothing really happens because if it's kind of really compelling and realistic. But there's also an awful lot of stuff where you just go, oh, what we, Graham Greene said, the older I get, the less patience I have with any book that doesn't begin with the phrase a shot Not rang out. out. Yeah. He's absolutely right. One of the things we, we barely touched on is your acting career, which has been somewhat illustrious. Oh, that? Well, yeah, yes. you know, you, you won an Olivier. Um, you just got incredible reviews for The Madness of King George at Nottingham. Are you a writer who acts or an actor who writes, or do you hate that question? I hate that. No, I, don't, I don't dislike it. I think it's perfectly legitimate. I'm, I've always done both, and I like doing both. I think there are periods when... I feel like I've been stuck behind a computer for ages and I just want to go and sit in a room with some new people and do you want to get out? Do you want to get out of the house? And there are times when I feel I, I, I can't wait to just go home and be on my own and just, you know, scrape myself away. So it sort of, it goes, it fluctuates in that. So Game of Thrones, yeah. in which you played the banker, are you coming back for the next No, season? I'm not. I just had this... Fantastic! One of those emails that's very easy to turn down from a, news, a national newspaper saying, we want Mark's hot take on the new season. We're prepared to pay big money. <laughs> I wrote back saying, well, I'm not in it. So good, good luck with that. <laughs> hot take. Hot but, take, I'm not in it. <laughs> when those scripts arrive, I mean, they, they must be... Well, they don't arrive. What you get is your bit. Oh, really? It's leak proof. Yeah, I tell you, it's something else. I won't name what it was, but I was auditioned for a film recently that was so secret you have to sort of like a like a secret code to get to get the the scene sent you not the whole script and you're not allowed to copy it because they're afraid it'll get out and this is no joke and so i thought well i'll, I'll take a picture of it and i took what, a, on your camera on, on your phone, phone yeah because yeah. i've got to learn it i can't just take i mean it's hard it's much easier to, to learn. take your desktop it's much easier to learn something when you've got a printout you know so I took a picture and it vanished and then I, I read the terms and conditions and it's like if you try and take a picture of this it will disappear and it did it was like magic thank you and I had to very shamefacedly right, reply and say I'm sorry I didn't realise it was really amazing you can do that now it's like how, how does that work I don't know this is the mm. of winter fruit for Luda in this instance the winter fruit is going to be pineapple because apparently in Britain pineapple is a winter fruit it's soon to be unavailable entirely (laughs) thank you thank you very much I must ask you about food given that this is called Out to Lunch and we've um, it's gorgeous it is isn't it 
Yeah. Um, I, as I said, I rarely, I only have an Indian um, in the evening. This is a nice change. This is very good. It does look sort of slightly tangled and autumn mm. forest florish to it. Uh, do you cook much at home? I'm a terrible cook. Are you a terrible cook? Yes. So you leave that to your other half? Yes, well, he's better. <laughs> uh, but we, yeah. do, we eat out a lot. Um, I wish I was a good cook. It's one of those things that I would do in a parallel life of having time to do things like that. But I'm, I'm not good. I have a sort of, I've said this before, I have a sort of anti-Midas touch. Give me the most exotic ingredients and I can make them bland. It's a terrible gift. Have you attempted to follow recipes? Yes. I'm, not, I'm thinking, I've got a systemizing mind. I can, I can do this, I can do this. Yeah, can't do it. Can't do it. I, especially spices. I find that so, it's like, go through them and go, oh, this, yeah, so that's nice. And, that, and then I taste, taste them and go, I, they're not present. Where have they gone? <laughs> it's a terrible gift. Um, I can I make a chili uh, and a tagine uh, of various sorts. You don't do that too often, though, but, do you? Um, no, but that's about it. Beans on toast is my favourite dish. Is it? To this day. Is it, is it a, um, I mean, that is, a, that is food of childhood. That's, that's a pure nostalgia. That's what I was going to say. So is that what you are hanging back? If I were hang, to hang tomorrow, that's what I'd have. Which may be possible. Well, one should always be careful. <laughs> um, it's my Sunday treat. I have it almost every Sunday. Does it have to be Heinz beans? Yes. I would say other brands are available. I think you'd probably disagree with me. I've never, I've never had one. No, really? There are others, <laughs> but they're not the same. You all know there must be a German word for the terrible feeling in your gut when you realise you've been served daddy's... Daddy's baked beans. Or a long compound or word. Daddy's brown sauce. Also, yeah. Wrong. Yes. Um, we're, we're heading towards the end of our oh. time together, but uh, so many ridiculous things that you wanted to do have happened, and you've said it's a joy and a, a delight, and you've got Dracula coming up. Is there anything that you have in your head that you really want to do that's left outstanding? Apart from obviously massive success and joy and being able to carry on writing and working and doing what you're doing, is there anything specific that you think about? Well, there are a few. Uh, I say this every time, it still doesn't happen. Uh, but the, the part I cover the most is Jacob Marley in The Christmas Carol. Why is that a, particular part? Oh, uh, it's my favourite Dickens. It's, I think it's an amazing story. It sounds ridiculous to say, but it's underrated. I think it is underrated because it, it's. In that strange way, a bit like It's a Wonderful Life, it's become in the public imagination a bit sort of saccharine. It's not. It's grim. And it obviously has these, you know, it's hugely celebratory, but it's quite a tough read if you read it. And I, some of that stuff I moves me to tears every time. So, some of it's rarely done. Isn't the solution for you to pitch? Yes! And you have tried, Jay. Have you tried? Yes. And Marley I love more than Scrooge because Marley's doomed it's too late for him and I've always loved that <laughs> I love the fact he intercedes on Scrooge's behalf you know I'd like to play more kings I just love playing kings you're it's, working your way through the kings yeah, aren't you in the wrong way <laughs> <laughs> but you do them very well mm-hmm. Mark thank you for letting me take you out to lunch it's been thank a delight thank you it's delightful I don't know where we are though <laughs> you're not far from Cannon Street Station I was driven in a, in a, in shut, a, a shuttered vehicle because it's a secret coming here, isn't it? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yes, yes.
delicious. But if after that you're still hungry, do find more episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please don't forget to rate and review Out to Lunch to help others load up their plates and do subscribe. Out to Lunch is a Something Else and Jay Rayner production and was brought to you by these fine people, Josh Gibbs, Hester Kant, Selena Reem, Robert Abel, Darby Doris and Steve Ackerman. The music was written, arranged and performed by me, Jay Rayner and Robert Rickenberg. Next time, I'll be smearing food in all sorts of places with Fifty Shades of Grey star, Jamie Dornan. It's a little sack that you put all your bits in. Literally said inmate number three on it. (laughs) 